Question number one, Steve, the lifestyles of today's rock musicians. What about the lifestyles? We think they need to be examined. We think you need to look hard because, you know, Jesus did say that it's important for us to know the kind of people we're hanging around with. Motley Crue openly talks about all their sleeping around with so many different girls. They openly brag about the sexual innuendos and opportunities they have after their stage shows. They have even bragged about the gang fights they've gotten into. Evangelical leaders shout unsettling warnings about outsider lifestyles, stoking tribalism in their congregations and mainstream white culture. Sound familiar? We're traveling back to the 1980s, the decade forever associated with conservative morality and Cold War anxieties. The Peters brothers, Steve, Dan, and Jim Peters, were the controversial St. Paul ministers who spent the 80s traveling the country to preach against rock music. They even hosted record burnings. Their story, besides illustrating the divisive nature of the era, also shows just how much of a moral battleground pop culture was during the Stranger Things years. I'm Andrea Swenson. This is The Current Rewind, the show putting music's unsung stories on the map. For the finale of our first season, we're sharing a fascinating story from the 80s, how the anti-rock movement was led by a trio of youth pastors from St. Paul, Minnesota. In addition to consuming a lot of Peters Brothers media, from their documentary Truth About Rock to their book Why Knock Rock to their mid-80s video Youth Suicide Fantasy, we spoke with Steve Peters and some of the folks who encountered him along the way, including the frontman of the St. Paul heavy metal band Impaler, who went toe-to-toe with the Peters in a series of public debates. We also got on the phone with Susan Baker, who's one of the people behind the parental advisory stickers on albums that warn of explicit content. It helps to understand the era here. In 1979, a new conservatism rose up in the United States. That year, Jerry Falwell founded the Moral Majority, a lobbying group that helped galvanize the voters who elected Ronald Reagan president in 1980. 1979 is also the year when Steve Peters began to preach against rock. My mom and dad had prayed that all four boys would go into the ministry, all four of us. And all four of us went into the ministry, and dad followed in our footsteps and uh, became ordained at age 58. I was more of the athlete of the family. I was going to try to pursue something there, maybe being a teacher and a coach. Wasn't quite sure. And uh, a youth group became available when I was 18. So they told me I was the state of Minnesota's youngest youth pastor, and those kids were really needy, a bunch of them trying to get off of drugs, and they just needed a friend. They needed a friend more than they needed some guy from on high. So I just became their friend and started caring about them, and the youth group grew and grew, and a lot of them gave their lives to Christ, and we started a little tiny church in 1973 out of that youth group, and it just took off from there. Steve and his brothers preached at Zion Christian Life Center in St. Paul. There, a parishioner gave him a tape of another minister's sermon. I think his name was Craig Harrington. And a gal in our church, we had a very small church at that point, maybe a hundred. She came up to me and said, hey, you ought to listen to this. I think it was a cassette tape back in. It was a cassette tape back in those days. Uh, This guy's done a lot of research on music. I know you work with a lot of young people. Maybe you'll get something out of it. And, and he was the one that actually called it a rock music seminar. The brothers decided to try it out themselves. The kids in my youth group were really on fire for God. They wanted to live closer for God. 
a lot of them had already told me they wanted to get rid of those records. They were just laying around back in those days. There were records. They started turning in thousands of dollars worth of music and drug paraphernalia before we ever talked. And um, we did our first talk on a Friday night, and, and it was kind of interesting. We had announced we were going to do it a couple weeks earlier. This would have been probably the middle of November of 1979. And took a bunch of pictures and realized we had used the wrong kind of film. And it wouldn't be available for a week or so. Well, our Friday night youth night was the night we needed it. So we stood up there and said, hey, we don't have any pictures to show. Uh, two weeks from tonight, we're going to do it again. Well, it happened to be Friday night of Thanksgiving, so the day after Thanksgiving, and we thought there'd be nobody there. Our youth group ran about 75 people. We had 400 and some people there that night. I don't know how they found out about it. We had buses pulling up. So we were wondering, what do we do with all this music that's being turned in? And I remembered reading something in the scriptures about back in Acts chapter 19, where when these Christian men decided to live for Christ, they got rid of all their astrological books. I just thought, well, you know what, if they burn that kind of stuff back in the New Testament, maybe we should burn it. And it said this in the Bible. It said, burn that stuff before all men. That phrase is basically straight out of Acts 19.19, King James Version. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. Somebody suggested, why don't you invite the news media? They'll tell everybody about it. So we did, the, we did the seminar Friday night. They told me, call the assignment desks of these channels 4, 5, 9, and 11, because all four of them came. And uh, I hadn't prepared the kids for this. And I thought, oh my gosh, I think these guys are making us look like Hitler youth. Steve asked a TV cameraman what he thought of the sermon. He said, you did a great media event. I said, what's a media event? He says, well, wasn't this a media event? I said, no, I was just doing what was what we're supposed to do. And he said, well, you did everything right. I said, what did we do right? He said, well, you did it at night and you used fire. Cameras are attracted to fire. And so we started getting calls from the newspapers. The St. Paul Pioneer Press called us up and asked, uh, uh, we'd like to talk to you guys. We said, no way. We just did this one time. We're not interested in talking. Uh, the news media is making us look bad. He said, I'm not going to tear you apart. He said, you've got three, four minutes on the news. Everybody wants to know who you are and why you did this. I'm just going to tell people who you are. But then the day later or so, Minneapolis Star and Tribune called us up and said, hey, everybody wants to know who you guys are. Who are you? We want to send a reporter over. So they did. So it would have even died there, except the AP newswires back in those days and the United Press International, they read the newspapers of the major cities all over the United States. So they must have read about the Peters brothers. They called us up, verified a few facts, sent it out to what we found out later was 7,500 newsrooms all across the world and printed our phone number at the end of the article. And we did nothing for three weeks except answer the phone and tell people in Toronto, Canada, and Sydney, Australia, and France, and you name it, what we were doing and why we were doing it. And then the story ran Monday morning on Good Morning America, and we received tens of thousands of invitations to go and do our rock music seminars. But we probably only did 40 or 50 record burnings out of those thousands of appearances. 
but uh, it would sure get the media attention. Whatever the percentage, the Peters Brothers' record-burning rallies became instantly notorious. They soon incorporated as a business called Truth About Rock Ministries, and they took their show on the road, culminating in a 1981 appearance in Lafayette, Louisiana, where, as the Washington Post reported, quote, 1,700 young Christians turned out and burned about $50,000 worth of rock and roll. We had gone to the Assemblies of God Bible College, but it seems like not even a lot of Assembly God churches started out with us. So I really think the secular media promoted us more over those 17 years than anybody else did. That's how people found out about us. And when, when we spoke on ABC Nightline with Ted Koppel, they said 15 million people were watching that Friday night. 15 million people. Jesus never ministered to a third of that. Um, maybe, maybe a 15th of that. After that, all we had to tell is the pastor, the superintendent, the principal, pick up the phone, call the media outlets, tell them the Peters brothers are coming to town. They were just on ABC Nightline with Ted Koppel. As soon as they'd say that, uh, the media outlets would devour us. Their timing was perfect. The 80s saw the rise of several made-for-TV ministers, from Jim and Tammy Faye Baker to Pat Robertson. The Bakers, as well as Pentecostalist Jimmy Swaggart, would end the decade mired in scandal. You can hear the Bakers' story on the new APM podcast, Spectacular Failures. But the Peters seemed to walk a straight path. Fundamentalist activists like the Peters operated from a conviction that popular culture was a modern-day Gomorrah, a jungle of sin from which children required protection. When MTV debuted in 1981, its often provocative videos full of sex and violence and impiety caused a moral outcry, and not just among fundamentalists. As critic Mick Farron wrote in Cream magazine, clearly any parents who were raised on a hard day's night in Woodstock but missed out on everything between Ziggy Stardust and Judas Priest is going to be a trifle concerned should they happen to catch, say, the video for Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It. Crosby, Stills, and Nash just got stoned. They didn't want to push Daddy through a wall. One band that the Peters locked horns with in person a couple of times was Kiss. In February 1983, John Bream of the Minneapolis Star and Tribune, as the local paper was known then, refereed a conversation between Dan Peters and Kiss's bassist, Gene Simmons. After discussing Kiss's song Plaster Caster, about a famous fanatic who made plaster casts of various rock stars' genitalia, Dan Peters said, We've started a national petition drive to rate rock records. If the subject deals with groupies and making plaster casts of penises, we think there should be a logo in the upper right-hand corner of the album that says, Caution, this album includes lyrics that sing about making casts of penises. So the parents know what you're singing about up front. To which Simmons replied, Oh, I may even do that willingly. What a great idea. It should be noted, not everything the Peters said was accurate. In fact, a lot of it was wildly inaccurate, like this youth suicide fantasy take on the Rolling Stones. Mick first got known by going out and urinating on stage in front of the music critics. The critics tore him to shreds and made him a millionaire, made him a famous man. 
None of that actually happened. But the Peters brothers' smoothly polished back-and-forth preaching style led many people to believe them. And it actually started out with my younger brother, Jim Peters, that original night. And uh, my brother Jim, after about a year and a half, two years, said, Steve, I get, my wife's a concert pianist. I want to start a Christian rock band myself. So I grabbed my older brother, Dan, and he's the one that I've authored most of the books with. And we've appeared on ABC Nightline together. And we, uh, we developed that style by just doing that thousands of times together. Amidst affluence, youth suicide has spiraled, more than doubling in the past two decades. Explore some causes and cures with your hosts, the Peters Brothers, Dan and Steve, authors of the best-selling book, Why Not Rock? How about a group like ACDC, a group that's done nothing but get to the top in rock music by promoting raw sexuality, if you will? Dan, I guess it really disgusts us. And even as this album cover is showing, Highway to Hell, we hope these guys aren't on the highway to hell. And yet, uh, even in the news, uh, uh, Night Stalker in California uh, paid homage to them that uh, one of their songs is the one that's that right. It was him. the song Night Prowler. And I'm also thinking about the former member of the band called Bon Scott, who died choking on his own vomit. Just a little bit more about the lifestyles of rock musicians. They were kind of like everywhere when I was in high school. It was you kind of couldn't avoid them. Not everybody watching was devout. Minneapolis composer musician Chris Strouth was one of the Peters Brothers' more secular devotees. I grew up. Uh, Catholic and then almost recovering almost instantly. But I went to a Catholic high school. I went to, uh, to Tina Grace. So that was, I graduated class of 86. I was a sophomore, I think. I was a recent convert to rock and roll. And when I got converted, it was like I had found Jesus. That was my religion. So seeing these guys kind of go after something where they were quite obviously wrong about a number of things really bothered me. They came to a place uh, where I went to grade school that had been converted into a Christian academy. And so there in their gymnasium, they had this thing where they were going to come and talk and they would have pamphlets everywhere. So it was constantly advertised. I'd listen to the records at home and now I was getting to see the live show, if you will. The Peters brought their show to Faith Academy, a fundamentalist Christian school across the street from Totino Grace. And I went with a couple of, like, one punk rock friend and two very suburban-looking people. And the whole idea was we're just going to go and watch the slideshow and all that. So you go in, and it's the whole hubbubaloo. They've got more or less a slideshow. And, uh, and they're talking about the evils of rock, how Kiss is knights in Satan's service. What about uh, Kiss? We need to talk about Kiss. Does their name really stand for knights in service to Satan? At the end of it, they were like, you know, does anybody have any questions or anything they want to talk about or any records that they want us to be aware of? And, of course, being the dutiful child that I was, I, you know, I raised my hand and I'm like, yeah, I go to the Catholic school next door. And there's a book they're making us read. It's not an album, but, you know, do you guys have problems with books? And they're like, well, of course we do. And I'm like, well, this book is, is really problematic. I mean, we've had to study it at length, and there is a lot of violence. There is a lot of bloodshed. You know, there's incest uh, in multiple cases, patricide, matricide, full-on mayhem, and total genocide. There's uh, threatening of killing of children. There's marrying of daughters. And 
you would think you would just see this coming like a freight train. And so <laughs> they're getting very concerned. And the whole audience is getting quite concerned about, like, how can they read this book? It's like, what is this called? I'm like, it's the King James edition of the Bible. And it was like, oh, very funny. And they're getting angry. I'm like, well, it is. I mean, next thing I know, I'm sort of picked up by the scruff of, of my very large polyester suit. I mean, it's kind of like an old-timey movie, like you're a hobo on a railway station, like, come on, kids, you got to get off. And they hauled me, one by the back of my jacket, one by my belt loops, I'm going to throw you out a door. Which, you know, if you've never been through through a door, I don't recommend it. But everybody should do it once, I suppose, when you're that age. By that point, the Peters were starting to sell all sorts of merch. Audio cassettes, videotapes, bumper stickers, and even muscle shirts. In 1984, they published Why Knock Rock, their first title from the St. Paul publisher Bethany House, after a couple of self-published books. We were one of their biggest-selling non-fiction books. They sold a lot of fiction stuff and lovey-dovey books and Christian books. We sold 150,000 copies of that, which is... Anything back in those days, over 10,000 was considered a bestseller. In Why Knock Rock, the authors refer to themselves as the giant killers, little Davids taking on the Goliath of the record business. The book includes a petition ready-made for the reader to send to Congress or the FCC with calls to ban, quote, obscene, indecent, or profane records. But the Peters brothers were having the opposite effect for many. Making illicit records seem cool. They insisted that certain rock records employed backward masking, literally recording something in reverse to subliminally instill evil messages in their songs. Their campaign against backward masking led some bands to start doing it, just to needle them. Besides, being called to the carpet on nightly news shows was a great sales aid. As one metal musician told Billboard, A lot of people watch Ted Koppel, so if they tell their kids, you're not buying that album, the kids will go out and buy it. One of the musicians who put a backward masked message on his record was Prince at the end of Darling Nikki. Needless to say, the Peters brothers were not big fans. Let's talk about the lyrics of Prince Rogers Nelson. Boy, some people have asked us, is he really a Christian? Is he living for God? Because he's dedicated some of his albums to the Lord. I mean, if you can't look at his songs, Dan, and find out where he's coming from, I think uh, maybe you need to go back and read your scriptures. Prince wasn't the only Minnesota musician the Peters singled out for attack. This one just sickened me when I saw it in a uh, rock store. It's called Impaler. It's a rock star with blood just coming out of his mouth. Do you think that's going to influence you to live for God? And yet, you know, I saw young people in that store. The store was packed, grabbing albums off those shelves. The worse it is, it seems like the better it sells. Radiation, fly to a thought, my wings. 
Bill Lindsay, founder and frontman of the veteran St. Paul metal band Impaler, remembers his first exposure to the Peters Brothers. The way I became aware of them was uh, my youngest brother uh, went to Central Lutheran School in Roseville, and they came to his school and they did a presentation. And so he's sitting there watching their presentation, and there's Impaler Rise of the Mutants comes on their screen, and they talk about how we're advocating cannibalism and, and disemboweling victims. And and so my brother went up to them at the end of the show and said, hey, that's my brother's band, Impaler. And they were very shocked. They thought we were from California or London or something. They didn't know. They had no idea we were from the Twin Cities. Bill was born in the Black Hills, but he spent most of his childhood in St. Paul. Uh, I got my first garage band together when I was about 13, 14 years old, and started playing music then. And early on, we kind of concentrated on writing some original material. And um, as we went along and learned how to do things, as you do when you're garage bands, just kind of figured out how to um, improve a show and make it more elaborate. And that was always something I wanted to do, being inspired by Alice Cooper. And then shortly after that, Kiss came into my life and Aerosmith. And so I always wanted to have a band that had a presentation, a stage show, and so we pursued that, and that just grew as we went along. When we got our demo tape together, we we got Impaler together as it was at the time and recorded a demo tape. We took it to Goofy's Upper Deck, which was a, just a den of, of iniquity of punk rock back then, and we gave them our demo tape, and they said, well, we've been looking for a band like this, a band that's in the metal but sounds... Uh, dirty and, and raw like Motorhead and Venom and stuff like that. And that's like, yeah, that's exactly what we are inspired by, you know. Bill and Impaler also found inspiration in the early 80s punk scene in Minnesota. In fact, a couple of punk rock VIPs were in the crowd one night at Goofy's in 1983. Bob Mould and, and Grant Hart from Husker Du were at the show. And then they said, uh, we really love your band. We'd like to have you come and, and warm up our Metal Circus tour is going to be first date at first avenue and we we're like yeah that would be great so like our fourth show we were playing in the main room with husker du bob mold ended up producing impaler's album if we had brains we'd be dangerous in 1986 but impaler have never been renowned for their studio work it was all about the live show well we wore costumes and makeup and we had uh props and um we had a really primitive flash pot set you know, back in the days when you could light off flash pots on clubs. So we had a very, very uh, caveman version of, of pyrotech, you know, soup cans nailed to two-by-fours, and it was crazy. Impaler's imagery was totally grotesque, but never exactly lifelike. They were campy. On their Facebook page, Bill is credited with singing Vogue Kills and Outrageous. The grislier, the better. Oh, we did all kinds of things. We had uh, we had coffins and cages that I'd come out in the beginning of the show, break out of a cage, severed head, uh, impaled on a on a spear, disemboweling of a some victim at the end of the show, just a, a lot of stuff like that. Kind of B horror movie kind of graphics. Fans at the time would come up and say, "I would love to do that. I'd love to be on stage and do that." So. We never had a shortage of a victim, so... Nor did they have a shortage of critics, as Bill remembers. 
they jumped on right away with our first Rise of the Mutants that seemed to upset the PMRC and the Peters Brothers. Though the PMRC, or the Parents Music Resource Center, was formed without any knowledge of the Peters Brothers' activities, they began with a similar origin story. In the spring of 1985, Susan Baker, who was married to then-Treasury Secretary James A. Baker, had an alarming revelation. Well, my husband was in government, and we had lots of kids. The youngest was seven. And one day, um, she just came to me and she said, Mommy, what's a virgin? I said, what? She said, what's a virgin? And I said, well, honey, why do you want to know that? And she said, well, Madonna was singing this song about touch like a virgin for the very first time. What does it mean to be touched for the very first time? And I just... I kind of fell out. I thought, oh, my gosh, what is this? I was really upset about it. I thought, these these lyrics are just not appropriate for young kids. I just don't know why they're being broadcast all over. And I talked to several friends who had had sort of similar experiences. And we just decided that parents, you know, parents would just say, turn the music down. They weren't listening to the lyrics. Tipper Gore, who was married to Tennessee Senator Al Gore, had a similar experience with Prince's darling Nikki. She joined forces with Susan and a few other like-minded women and founded the PMRC. A lot of people came to this, and, and we were really sort of surprised. One of the people that came was the wife of Eddie Fritz, who was the president of the National Association of Broadcasters. So he wrote a letter to 800 station owners alerting them concerned for parents about porn rock. In September of 1985, the PMRC headed up a notorious Senate hearing on so-called porn rock, the term the organization used as a warning. Along with singer-songwriter John Denver and Dee Snyder from the band Twisted Sister, vanguard rocker Frank Zappa testified against the PMRC's ideas, claiming they'd lead to censorship. That's something Susan Baker refutes. Frank Zappa kind of was the spokesman, and he called us cultural terrorists because we were, you know, he felt we were government-wise and she shouldn't be able to do this. And we ended up being on lots of TV programs, and we had a lot of defenders, but we sure had a lot of people in the music industry who, who thought we were for censorship. We had never been for censorship. We just wanted truth and labeling. You know, we just thought, if I'm paying money for my kids' music products, I should know if there's something that are totally contrary to our values and ideas. Some of those contrary ideas were on Impaler's album, and the PMRC singled out the band for attention. The way I became aware of it, was uh, the PR guy or the AR guy at Combat would call me up and say, Bill, you heard about this PMRC, right? And I was like, what is that? And he said, it's these Washington wives and they're demonstrating against rock music and they're, they're trying to have hearings to have rock music, you know, um, censored in some way. And I was like, no, I wasn't aware of it. Did you know you were on Nightline last night? I said, no. 
because uh, they were on there and they held your album up and talked about your album. And then the next day they'd call back and say, Bill, you were on Sally Jesse Raphael yesterday. And I was like, oh, I was at work. I didn't see that. And they were on all, they were doing the circuit, you know, they were trying to build up their campaign. So they were going on every major show, Phil Donahue, and they're showing our album on there. And so, you know, parents tell their kids, oh, don't, you don't buy that Impaler album. Well, when they get their lunch money, they save it up and they go to the record store and what do they buy? You know, Impaler or Metallica or whatever they were told was going to be bad. So we really laughed all the way to the bank, you know. In the wake of the PMRC hearings, debates about rock lyrics were a hot topic for morning TV. And that's when Channel 5 invited Impaler to a debate with the Peters brothers. I got a call, and it was a director at Twin Cities Live, this Twin City morning show that used to be on. It was a a show where they'd bring in a live audience, and they'd have different guests. And the director of the show called and and said, uh, we're going to have the Peters Brothers and one of the people from the PMRC on the show, and we'd like to have you guys on there, too. They said, can you come down in makeup and costume? And, And we said, yeah, sure. And so we actually went down in full makeup and costume, and we sat in a special section of the audience and debated with them. By 85, we had had six years of experience. And so we would take anybody on. We would take any disc jockey on. Uh, we debated many and many of the top rock promoters in the United States. And uh, they told us towards the end of our, our run in the Twin Cities, when they would try to interview us on talk shows, they would tell us, we invited a number of disc jockeys or people to hold the other position, and we can't find anybody who's willing to bait you guys anymore. But uh, Bill Lindsay was, uh, had, had a kind of a loose screw, I think, and that's probably why we sort of hit it off with him. We had heard about Impaler. They explained to us that at the end of their concert or somewhere during their concert, they would impale a young woman, supposedly, and throw her guts out into the audience. So we thought they were great targets. And uh, we wanted to have a hard-nosed rocker right across from us arguing to the top of his lungs. That would bring out the best in us. And so uh, Bill Lindsay was very uh, verbal, uh, very articulate, and so he was a formidable foe, and we you know, did a few different things with him. Well, their shtick is they really like to control the conversation. So when they're asked, they kind of do a tag team thing, and one of them will start talking, and uh, the host will try and break in, and then the other one will start talking, and they talk over you when you're trying to make a point. So you end up kind of raising your voice and trying to talk over them to make your point, and uh, you know the host would try and kind of get things back and into control. But that's how they kept people off kilter. The first taping, they'd say, sick, well, let's talk about sick. Look look at the graphics on your album. This is sick. This is cannibalism. You know, what are you teaching children with, when they look at an album like this? You know, I mean, they didn't know me well enough to do any, to personally attack me. You know, I worked at a nursing home taking care of people uh, for my day job. And it's like, what are they going to really, what do they even know about me? You know what I mean? We're, we're inspired by classic horror movies. Like, a lot of our shtick comes from Night of the Living Dead, you know. They get very mock-exasperated, you know, with uh, uh, claims that I would make, you know. Oh, come on now! You know, just very uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan or something, you know. Kind of, oh, that's not true! 
The appearance went so well that Bill Lindsay was invited back a year later, in the summer of 1986, to go toe-to-toe with the Peters on TV. This time, KSTP broadcasts the debate from the Minnesota State Fair. Very wide mix of people are there, you know. You have uh, the teenagers who got wind of the show and what it was going to be about. There was some of that there. Uh, You know, a lot of agricultural people, farmers that came and sitting down, you know, to watch the Twin Cities live show taping, you know. Uh, We were outside in the sun, but it it had a kind of canopy. And then all the people were in chairs uh, out in the lawn area. It was full. All the chairs and everything were full. And then just more passerbys would stop and watch. But they were in the trailer and they were all talking about their points that they were making on their book and and this publisher and that publisher and I was sitting in there just listening to them and I was going, "Mm mm-hmm, that kind of confirms my suspicions about these guys, you know, they're kind of, they're making a buck, you know. The host showed a clip from Madonna's Papa Don't Preach video. That's a wonderful, that's a great sequel to her song, Like a Virgin, touched for the very first time as she rides around on the floor like an experienced prostitute. She tells the girls of America, sleep with anybody you want, have sex as often as you want, because you can, when you find Mr. Right, you can start all over like a virgin. And now here's her song, Papa Don't Preach, I'm now pregnant, I've decided to keep my baby, don't give me a hassle, I'm going to live my own lifestyle. I mean, that's a tremendous good set of values to teach to the teeny boppers of America, don't you think? Bob? Uh. I was at the state fair and we were at this trailer and we were getting makeup put on for evening up our complexions on the air. And uh, the director came to me and he goes, Bill, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. So I went outside of the trailer with him and he goes, hey, listen, I don't want you to get too friendly with these guys because when we go on the air, I don't want, you know, I, I, he wanted the friction, you know, he, you didn't want us to be too buddy-buddy because I was talking to them normally in the trailer, you know. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. I said, once the camera starts rolling, it's on, you know. So it was a bit like pro wrestling, I guess. Yeah. Rock and roll is tired of being a scapegoat to you people. And I know you're making a living off it, you know. And you're not making a living off you of know, it? You know, this is a gimmick. Hey, uh, this, is a gimmick. A... this is a gimmick, and I know you guys know what good gimmicks are because you're selling books and yeah, all right. kinds of paraphernalia. We've made millions Just of dollars. Like we right. are, so, you know. Before right. the end of the show, Bill made the Peters an offer they couldn't resist. I, I want to challenge the Peters brothers. Uh, we've at, we've invited them many times down to our shows to see us play and perform, and uh, I just want to tell them to come down and see us Sunday night at Ryan's in St. Paul and, t- and see oh, our Oh, you would have to themselves. get a plug in there. Okay, go right in. It used to be called Ryan's Corner. Then it became the lab, and then it became Station 4. It's down off um, St. Peter and 5th in St. Paul. It's a legendary metal venue. Not only did the Peters brothers take Lindsay up on attending the show, they actually got on stage and introduced Impaler. But first, they organized a protest. That one was even more than protesting. We were trying to share the gospel with some of the attendees and some of the patrons. Uh, We showed up. I'm not sure we accomplished much. A band called Vile, which was another great metal band from the time, (laughs) they went all out. I mean, they... Literally, they played some pornography on the wall on a little uh, eight millimeter, you know, uh, projector. They just went out of their way to try and completely tick off the Peters brothers, you know, or just. And we just kind of did it naturally, you know. We didn't go out of our way. <laughs> Shortly before the music was going to start, and they were milling around with their Bibles in hand inside. I went downstairs 
to finish getting ready. And the Peters brothers actually came down in the dressing room. And I, I have a couple pictures that we took of them down in the dressing room at, at Ryan's Corner. <laughs> Another person in attendance that night was Alan Bolio, the Minneapolis photographer who'd shot the covers for Prince's early 80s albums, Dirty Mind and Controversy. I actually heard from Bill, the, uh, the impaler guy, <laughs> that uh, Steve Peters was protesting that show at Ryan's that night. And I said, well, let's go out and meet him. And uh, so I took Bill, the impaler guy, and and the Peter Brothers guy, and I, we, we just did an impromptu photograph, and those two seemed to get along. Then later on, I got a call from Steve, and he wanted to do a photo session, and he wanted Impaler attacking him in the photo session. <laughs> and he said, I'll pay you $500. And I said, all right. I asked him, I needed a new promo picture. And I, I called him up. I said, hey, Bill, Steve, uh, would you ever uh, appear in a promo picture, you and a couple of your band members? He said, Steve, we would love it. In fact, I'm friends with Prince's photographer who just took a bunch of Prince's pictures. And I will get a hold of him, and he's got a studio. We'll just go right there. And sure enough, Bill was true to his word. I think outside I only took about five or six shots outdoors, and then I think when we did the studio shot, of course there was a lot more rolls of film there, maybe two or three rolls of film. And if everybody had been, you know, gotten made up and had this story-like arc of, you know, the Peter Brothers, you know, shaming Impaler and all that, and Impaler kind of taking it. It was really all for fun. I took a couple of the most awesome promo pictures with those guys. Bill had blood coming out of his his mouth. Uh, one of his guitarists has, is ready to crush my skull with a guitar, and we were going to print up thousands of those as promo pictures and send them out. And we got a call from the printer studio and said, do you want us to take out this naked woman on this guitar? <laughs> we said, yeah, we're going to use it in churches. You probably better etch over that somehow. According to Steve, you can be crushing skulls one minute and shaking hands the next. You can debate someone. They can be completely on the other side of the issue. And you can be friends. You can go out and to Starbucks afterwards and have a coffee with them. By the end of the 80s, Truth About Rock Ministries was beginning to run out of steam, and so were the Peters. Steve and Dan had begun working separately, and both had families. We had our second child. We didn't have kids for the first seven years, and uh, then it took about three years for the second one. Having two kids, whining in the middle of the night, uh, you're trying to get up, you have to get up at 6 a.m. and get on some radio program. My wife started stopped going out with me, so that wasn't that fun. And so she was raising the kids without me. I was winning the world. And then I developed vocal nodules. I would get up in front of a crowd, and I couldn't even finish sentences sometimes. Now, a lot of rock stars get vocal nodules, too, and they've got to rest their voices. But I would go into some cities, and they'd have me on an AM radio station at 6 a.m. by 9 a.m., I might be on their local Good Morning show. Uh, then I, by 10, 10.30, I'm in the local junior high or middle school uh, with a 30- to 45-minute rally. I can't, we couldn't talk about God or anything, but we could talk about sex, violence, drugs, all those things, so wise choices. 
Then uh, that afternoon, by 1 o'clock, 1.30, we'd be in a local high school. And then that night, then we'd be talking to the people who brought us into that city. They want to, you know, ask us lots of questions. And then we had a two-hour rally that night, and I'd have 50, 100 kids come up on stage, wanting to debate, wanting to talk, and I'd be there an extra hour. So my voice was literally being used 12, 14 hours a day. And I developed vocal nodules so bad, the the doctor said I could only go out twice a month, and I thought, I can't even support myself doing that. So we begrudgingly let it let it die. Probably about 96, 97, and uh, it would be our very, very last things. The problem with, with doing something on rock music, if you go out and talk to teenagers, and you talk about a group that was popular last week, and you're not talking about the group that's popular this week, uh, you're a has-been, and they won't even listen to you. And the groups began to change so fast. You know, we just couldn't even keep up anymore. We would hire people to do research. I feel really good about those years. Those were hard years. They were tough years. You know, it's a confrontational ministry. I told people, I want to go out next time and just talk about love. First of all, it never changes. And I never have to worry about changing another slide, doing research on a new group. But I, I love those years of my life. I felt like we impacted a lot of lives. In 1990, the recording industry widely adopted the Parental Advisory Explicit Lyrics Warning Sticker. Even now, streaming services tag songs that have explicit language. But it's harder than ever to stop the flow of art, or, as some might call it, questionable content. Susan Baker has received mixed feedback about her efforts. Things haven't really drastically improved. But we did alert people, and I think it's, it has helped a lot of parents. In fact, today, we had a bunch of teenagers, and they said, Mom, what are you doing? They thought we were nuts. Today, I have people come up to me and say, you know, I really thank you all for what you did at the PMRC, because I would never have known The Peters Brothers and the PMRC's impact on the U.S. reached beyond music. Not only did they pave the way for boycotts of book series, Harry Potter and His Dark Materials, they also showed how easy mass media make it to spin sensationalism into profit. Talk shows and newspapers gave a platform to the outrageous, the fringe players exploiting the public's appetite for entertainment over accuracy, something that still happens today. The Current Rewind is produced by Ms. Najdili Sussna is our writer. Esther is our research assistant. And is our managing producer. Okay, fine. We'll stop. Our theme music is Winging It by Laserbeak from the album Luther. Corey Schreppel mastered this episode. Thanks to our guests Steve Peters, Bill Lindsay of Impaler, Susan Baker, Chris Strouth, and Alan Bolio. Well, that does it, folks. This is the end of our first season of The Current Rewind. Thank you so much for checking it out. It's been a wild ride, especially this episode. And if you've dug it, please go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. We'd really appreciate it. Go to thecurrent.org slash rewind to find transcripts and bonus materials. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's the current.